we continue our, our study here in, the, in this gospel, John takes us to a, to a feast. You know, we often, I think, take feasting for granted in our, in our lives, in our culture even. Most of us are so well provided for that we have more than enough food and more than enough drink at every meal. Um, that, that historically, feasting has happened in the, you know, maybe most gloriously in the places of lack, places of want. When abundance comes, uh, feasting takes place. Michael Card tells a story of the time he was visiting a family in Scotland, and his visit was the occasion for a feast. And, and so he heard that they're having this feast, and he shows up, and at the feast, they were all served a, a huge baked potato and a, a leaf of lettuce and a tall glass of water. And he doesn't say he wasn't impressed, but there's the impression that he wasn't terribly impressed until he realized that at a normal meal in this home, the whole family shared a potato, one potato. For everyone to get their own potato is a feast. And yet we take it for granted. People throughout human history have treasured feasts. The entire Jewish calendar was centered around feast days. Today we read of a feast where wine the wine had run out jesus is called upon to to solve this problem so that the feast can continue and what we see is jesus without hardly any fanfare casually turns about 150 gallons of water into the best wine that had been served throughout the entire party a feast worth remembering a feast of abundance and joy that's what we're going to talk about today Uh, let me read for you from john chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 this is the very word of god he says On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the serpents, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his sign, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for uh, your word. We pray this morning that you would use it to draw us near to yourself, to reveal yourself to us, to make make yourself known but also to make us known that you would reveal to us our lack of dependence upon you. That you would reveal to us the the futility of trying to to bring abundance of joy into our own lives by our own means. Help us to submit to you and your power and your glory. It's in your son's gracious name we pray. Amen. All right. You know, it's fitting that the first miracle that Jesus performs here essentially kicking off his public ministry is at a wedding feast for we know 
that his entire ministry is leading to a greater feast, an eternal feast. We call it the, the marriage supper of the Lamb. An eternal feast where we, with our sin behind us, with death and fallenness all behind us, will enter into his glory. And the consummation of our relationship with him of sorts will feast, will gather at a wedding and at a feast around a, a grand table where Jesus will gather the church, his bride to himself, he being the bridegroom, and we'll celebrate together at the this greatest feast that's ever existed. We'll celebrate the fullness and the beauty of the gospel. We'll celebrate with full hearts and, and satisfied appetites, finally realizing and understanding that Jesus truly is enough for us. He's more than enough. Jesus himself is the abundance of joy, and that's what this passage and this story points us towards. As we think about the story in the wedding feast at Cana here, we should make note that the, the apostle of John draws our attention to the fact that Jesus is not one who neglected the party. He's invited to the party. He goes to the party. From all evidences, Jesus likes to party. And we go, wait, that doesn't sound right. But the evidence, as we'll see, shows that Jesus loves people. He loves food and drink, and he loves a community. He's often found feasting around food and wine with his friends. Those were who were his followers and those who weren't. In Luke chapter 15, we're told this. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. The sinners. And the Pharisees and the scribes, the uptight religious people who think Jesus shouldn't want to party, grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus liked to feast so often that the Pharisees accused him of being a drunk and a glutton. Now we know Jesus was neither of those things. He never sinned. He never fell short of God's glory. So no condemnation should be cast upon him. But maybe though there should be a reason for us to pause and contemplate our own lives. I've already mentioned that maybe we take feasting for granted and my suspicion is that we don't party enough. How often do we fail to take advantage of the abundance we have been given, the abundance of food and drink and friends? How often do we partake of these things without even being thankful or grateful? How often do we miss opportunities to celebrate with joy the good gifts that God has given to us? You know, when this story was read in the church where I was raised in the faith, someone was always trying to explain away the abundance and the quality, and the quality of the wine. Surely it couldn't have been real wine. But the reality is that Jesus and the Bible aren't hung up on the presence of wine. The scripture is consistent that, abundance of, that an abundance of wine is the presence of blessing. In Psalm 104, the scripture says, You caused the grass, that the psalmist crying out to God, You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may, be, may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. A sign of God's provision for us. At the same time, the Bible prohibits drunkenness and prohibits people in some roles of government and leadership from partaking of wine. There's wisdom that has to be applied there. First uh, Corinthians 10 tells us, the Apostle Paul says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. 
And so the scripture doesn't say no wine, no food, no joy. Teaches moderation. And that we should do all things, eating and drinking, for the glory of God. It means that in our, in our pursuit of glorifying God, some of us may be able to drink wine in moderation without being drunk, while others may choose to abstain for reasons of their own conscience or lack of self-control. So none of us, those who partake in moderation or those who abstain, should be ridiculed or shamed for our position. We, we should live within the peace of our own consciences as long as all that we do is rooted in and flows from faith. That's the Bible's teaching on the subject of wine and drunkenness and moderation. The Scripture's consistent that the provision of these things is joyful. We get hung up on the issue of the presence of wine, though, here in John 2. We're going to miss the point of the story. That's not the point of the story. What is the point of the story? This story, this occasion, this record of history is preserved here that we might see the glory of Christ and place our faith in Him. Remember the, the title of this sermon series. You'll sit here on the, on the screen behind me. Points us to the two goals that the Apostle John had in writing down this record of Jesus' life. That we might see His glory and then in response to seeing His glory we might walk in the light. And this, this passage teaches us that same thing. That we might see the glory of Christ and in response to it walk in the light that He gives us. This passage reveals the glory of Christ in a few ways. First, in His interaction with His mother. We don't need to be distracted by the woman comment. That's us, not him. <laughs> the, the, in, in his day and age, that would have been a term of endearment to him, saying, my lady, uh, my dear. So beyond his title for her, which we also see at the cross when he tells John to take care of her, he, he talks to her there in the same language, it's a term of endearment. Here's what we need to see. Mary knows who he is. I mean, she knows who and what he is. She knows how he was born. She knows that she was a virgin. That her, the birth of Christ was miraculous. We don't know all the details of his raising in his younger years, but Mary does. She didn't miss a thing. She's a mom. She knows what's going on. And although he hasn't revealed his miraculous abilities as far as we know up to this point, Mary knows. Mary knows what's going on. And so we don't know what she's thinking at this moment. Maybe she's tired of waiting for him to be public with who he really is. Maybe she's noticed that he's starting to assemble his disciples and that the time for his public ministry has arrived. That She was probably maybe there at his baptism. She knows it's time for him to get about his father's business. Maybe she's trying to give him a little motherly nudge into what she knows he should be doing. Of course, he's God. <laughs> maybe he's, maybe she's ready for him to finally move out of the house and get on with his life. He's 30. <laughs> she knows. We often overlook the presence of Mary throughout Jesus' life, but there she is aware that he probably has a solution at his disposal to the problem at hand, she believes in Jesus. His mom. We also see his glory in the quiet way that he goes about this miracle. At first, he tries to get out of being involved. He says, no, 
what moment, why do you involve me in this? My time hasn't come. And she's like, but it's coming. I know that I have a mother's intuition. I know. So, but as he looked around, maybe he knew, maybe Jesus understood that, that he could actually save the master of this wedding feast a great deal of embarrassment because to run out of wine at a feast meant the party's over. Everybody's going home. But if it's a normal Jewish wedding, it's probably going on for a few days, if not a week. And so there's a problem here. So when Jesus does perform the miracle, it seems that the, the only people that know what happened were the servants who had carried out his instructions. It's, there's an understated glory there that Jesus understanding who he is and what he's doing at this point doesn't make a massive deal out of it. He's the Lord of the wine. He's the Lord of the water. To change water into wine, that's impossible but not for Jesus. And he doesn't make a big deal about it. He just does what's necessary in this moment. James Montgomery Boyce points out that the glory of Jesus here is also revealed in the sign that is performed. The use of the word sign here in verses 11 uh, reminds us that the miracles that Jesus performs are always pointing beyond themselves to some greater reality. And Boyce says that the reality um, found here is in the presence and use of the purification jars which Jesus used to, to hold the new wine. The purification jars were there for the guest of the party. As they came in, knowing they were about to eat, participate in a feast, would have ceremonially washed themselves in a purification ritual that was common to the Jews. And so these, these big jars of water here served a purpose. And they've been used. Everyone's at the party. And so the water's been diminished, the water's been used, and everyone's at the party. And and Boyce points out that these purification rituals performed by them, that what John wants us to see here is that the cleansing of their outward body and these same, using this same water, couldn't bring them the joy that Christ would bring in a greater sense, beyond the wine of this party to who he is and what he's doing, pointing them to a greater purification even. He says that John is being deliberate here and pointing out that these jars being empty were like any religion based on simple outward cleanliness. That there's a religious lesson going on here. That outward religion, outward acts, don't change our hearts. They aren't able to change our hearts and bring true joy. But the joy that Christ brings is everlasting and affects us at the core of who we are and what we love. We are never the same once we see the glory of Christ. Once we come to truly trust in Christ as the source of all joy. And we're told that the disciples see this here. They see this and it says, and the disciples believed in him. What did John tell us was the purpose of this book? That we would see the work of Christ and believe in him. That's what we see here. John would know. He's one of them. There's even an old Jewish tradition that says this was John's wedding. I don't know whether that's true or not. But we imagine they're gathered here to celebrate. And in the midst of this, the disciples, not distracted by the wedding, see the glory of Christ in the glory of the wedding, in the glory of the provision. And then finally we see his glory in the abundance of wine, which points us to the, the presence of this abundance of joy. The blessings of the kingdom here we see are, are overflowing, filled to the brim in the fullness of joy. I've already pointed out that, that Jesus enjoys feasting with his friends. He loves people. He loves community. This story is often pointed to during wedding ceremonies as proof that, that Jesus loves weddings and marriages and families, all those things. It's true. 
you looked at the lives of some Christians, though, you might think that being a part of the body of Christ has drained all the fun out of their lives. I think that's rooted in the fact that we don't understand the grace of God. I think that many of us are afraid to have fun because we're afraid of slipping over some sinful line and getting smashed by the heavy hand of God's judgment. But that fear is rooted in a lie. My buddy Steve Brown would say, from the pit of hell and it smells like smoke. Jesus is gracious and kind and merciful and He calls us to enjoy a life of abundant joy. The abundance is evidenced here by the abundance of wine. We don't know how large this wedding party was, but after this miracle, there was an abundance of wine. Six water jars, each containing 20 to 30 gallons of water, which means that they ended up holding 120 to 180 gallons of good wine. The master of the ceremony said what? You have saved the best for last. Everyone else gives the cheap wine to people once they're getting drunk and don't care anymore, but not you. Here, the best wine is served. Maybe this is foreshadowing John 6 where Jesus says, anyone who comes to me will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Abundant wine, abundant joy. Joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's commanded of us. Psalm 32, 11 says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Philippians 4, 4 in the New Testament, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Jesus longs for us to live in freedom and joy, a freedom that understands that the love of God will carry us all the way home, even if we do fall into sin at times. He always loves us and reminds us that He is our good Father who longs for us to run to Him in joy, not flee from Him in fear. Even if we fall into shameful seasons of sin, God never rejects those who run to Him in repentance of faith. In repentance and faith. So what does that mean? It means we need to quit walking on eggshells around God, afraid that He's going to smash us as soon as we get out of line. He wants us to live in joy, not fear. What's the most common command in the Old Testament. Do not fear, for I am with you. We're called to live for His glory, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That's what our catechism says. It's the purpose of man, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Not enjoy Him once we get home. Not enjoy Him once He cleans up our lives and does away with all of our sin. No. To glorify Him and enjoy Him now and forever is implied. Today. He didn't say, I just came to give you eternal life. He said, I came to give you abundant life, which implies the present. The joy is not simply a future joy. It's a present and abundant joy. C.S. Lewis tells the story of a conversation that he had at a dinner party when he was a professor at Oxford. After a conversation about the grace of God, uh, one of his fellow professors confessed to him that she didn't really think that any of this Christian stuff was true. So Lewis said he leaned in close and he whispered to her, he said, but don't you wish it were? But don't you wish it were? My hope is that we will live our lives with such joy that those around us who don't believe would be jealous of our abundant peace and joy. 
that they might long to enjoy life the way that we enjoy life, living life to its fullest. The world absolutely believes that to become a Christian would mean to say no to fun, to say no to enjoyment, to say yes to everything boring in life, right? But the scriptures don't paint it that way. And if we understand the beauty of the gospel the way that we should understand the beauty of the gospel, and it leads us towards the joy that he intends for it to lead us towards, we will be anything but boring. We will not be lacking. We will finally understand that all the things that the world says are fun and joyful, while they may be in many ways, can't hold a candle to the abundance of joy that Christ gives to us and that God brings to us through Christ and through the work of the Spirit. It's a lie to think that fun and joy are out there. The one who is most joyful sits at the right hand of the Father forevermore. It says, at the right hand of the Father, there are pleasures forevermore. Who's there? Jesus. And we have an inheritance with him. All that is his is ours, including his joy. And it's an eternal joy. It's an abundant joy. Today, we're going to conclude our service by celebrating. That's what we do. We sing and we feast. We celebrate at the Lord's table. Wine, bread, the gifts of God representing his body, his blood, his flesh. We celebrate the joy that Jesus brings us into when he draws us into a family. When we come to this table, we call it what? Communion. We talked about that before, that it implies that we come here as part of a community, that the fullness of joy is found not alone, but in the body of Christ, in the community in which we come in, in the family to which he's called us. We need one another even to support our joy. Because we tend to despair. We find ourselves struggling with all those things we're praying about a while ago. The state of our world and the, the reality of, of cancer and disease and struggles and, and all the things that come upon us. All the hardships that will come upon us. So that we tend to reject and walk away from peace and joy. What do we need in that moment? I need you. You need me. We need each other to come alongside each other and say, there's hope beyond the darkness. There's hope. There's joy. There's an abundance of joy. That doesn't mean that we're all going to be happy, clappy all the time. That's not the point. The point is that the joy shines in the darkness, even as it does in the light. We're going to couch our celebration in two celebratory songs. We're going to sing a traditional Christmas carol this morning because I take every chance I can to sing joy to the world. And... Um, so we're going to sing about the glory of Jesus coming into our world, the gift that Jesus is to us that causes us to sing out what? Joy! That Christ has come bringing joy to the world. And then we're going to sing a song that's overflowing with Easter joy, the finished work of Christ. We're going to sing the power of the cross, that Christ has raised us, has paid for our sins, has taken the wrath of God upon himself and then given us life everlasting through his victory over sin and hell and death and the grave. And so here's my hope for us as we sing, as we feast, as we listen, as we go from here, as we feast together, even around the table after worship today, that 
My hope is that the gospel brings this truth and light into our world and into our life that causes us to cling to joy, whether we find ourselves in the midst of celebration like the wedding at Cana or, as we were just talking about, in the, in the darkest night of our soul's deep despair. Because both of those are realities. There, there are times of mourning and there are times of feasting. But Ecclesiastes says that it's good for us, it's a blessing to go into the house of mourning. And we go, that doesn't sound right. Wait, we like this wedding at Cana stuff. The party, the wine, the food, that sounds good. But Ecclesiastes says, don't also neglect the blessing of the funeral feast, the house of mourning. <clears throat> you know, I, I, we buried my aunt two weeks ago. You know what we did after we buried her? We feasted. Why? Because it's not the end of hope. The grave is not the end. Death, where's your victory? Death, where's your sting? But yet we, the blessing in all of that is that we need to remember we're finite. <laughs> that all of this is coming to an end. Only God is infinite. We're dependent upon Him. And so our celebrations, in part, even those joyful celebrations that show up in the midst of darkness, like at a feast of mourning, <clears throat> do what? They reveal the truth that there's hope beyond the darkness, that there's life beyond the grave. And yet we're called to take care of our eternal souls even now, to trust God now. Today is the day of salvation. And there's good news because our joyful celebrations are rooted in a truth. And what is that truth? That everyone who calls the name of the Lord will be saved. That the gospel is true. <clears throat> for the most righteous man. For the most sinful man. Everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. And so we call people not just to a party. But to a party that's rooted in faith. Faith in our Savior. Jesus Christ our Lord. One of the greatest gifts of the gospel is that it brings us peace and joy wherever we find ourselves in any moment in time on the darkest day on the brightest night let me pray for us that God would give us hope Father in heaven we come <laughs> trusting that, that you are sovereign and that your desire for us is that we would live in peace and joy not pieces of joy but abundant joy eternal joy abundant life now and forevermore. God, that we would truly believe that the greatest pleasures to be found are found at the right hand of the Father, where you sit, Christ, where there are found pleasures forevermore. Would you help us to feast well, to feast on the gospel as we come to this table, to feast in our community and with our friends as we go to the other table after, after worship. God, we're thankful for your provision for us. You provided for us so abundantly. Help us not to take feasting for granted, but fill us with joy, eternal joy that's rooted in the fact that you have loved us and you have sent your son to die for our sins that we might be set free, free from your wrath and condemnation, set free to live in your peace and joy. Thank you for being compassionate and merciful towards us. Help us to party well with hearts that are full, that are overflowing with gospel joy. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.
The Gospel of Mark tells us that as Jesus was eating with his disciples, he took bread. After blessing it, he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Does the joy to the world make you happy? It does me. Maybe it's just me. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. There is no greater news. There is no greater joy than to understand the beauty of this. That even while we were still sinners, God demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die for our sins. <coughs> what greater news is there? What other joy can, can top that? There is none. May God keep us from being distracted by the things of this world that reduce our understanding of his glory. May we celebrate him in fullness and joy. As we come to the table, let's confess our faith together. I ask you, Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. The communion of the saints. We gather here. Why? Because we're his saints. We're his people. This table is for those who have been set apart for his glory. Who have been called from before the foundation of the world to worship him in spirit and in truth. To be filled with the fullness of joy. Yet we struggle. Does that disqualify us from coming? No, not if we live in repentance and faith. Our, our, our struggle. We will struggle. We need to struggle towards him. And we need help doing that. This table offers us help. There's grace present here. God meets us to this place. He doesn't call us here to just go through an empty ritual. No, he calls us here to meet him. He promises to meet us in the blood of Christ, in the body of Christ. He feeds us. We need this. What fuels our joy? This, the beauty of the gospel that's represented here at the table. If you're his, you're welcome. This is a feast of joy. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this table. Would you use these gifts to feed our faith today, to empower us to live for you and for your glory, to empower us to have joy even in the midst of sorrow, to rejoice even as we live in a fallen world that, that at times causes us to despair. God, would you help us to fight for joy through the goodness of, of your gospel? Would you help us to, to spread your joy as we tell others that, yes, while despair is real, there is hope in the midst of the darkness. There is joy to be found even when the, even when the wine is one run out. We know one who has a greater and more filling wine who brings the, the new wine of the new kingdom. God, we thank you for Jesus who came into this world to redeem us and yet to give us joy, joy in Him.
Holy Spirit, work in us now that we might have faith, that we might live our lives in the joy of the kingdom, that we might love fellowship with the saints, we might love to feast with one another, we might love to enjoy this life, this life that you have given us and have promised us abundance, abundant joy. And God, yet you, at the same time, you've promised us eternal joy with you, with Christ, who sits at your right hand, for there are pleasures forevermore. God, give us a taste of that even now, even in this life. If we go through our week, as we face hardships and joys of this world, God, would you give us peace that passes all understanding. Thank you for Jesus, who brings this joy to its fullness. It's in your Son's name we pray. Amen.